We are delighted that Dr. Nelson Klosterman can be with us this evening. All of my interactions with Dr. Klosterman have been exceedingly pleasant, and uh, I do count him a brother in the Lord, and uh, I hope also uh, that we have a uh, a friendship that's developed. We see one another now about once a year, Dr. Klosterman. <laughs> so we're hoping that you can come on some Sunday morning and that Steve Caselli, who also is over here, will switch with us and take you in the evening and we'll have you for a Sunday morning on some occasion. Dr. Klosterman is a father of five. He and his wife are also grandfather, grandmother of 15. Is the count still right? 17. 17, this covenant theology at work, ordained to the gospel ministry in 1975. He's taught courses on the graduate level internationally in the fields of ethics, New Testament studies, preaching, church polity. His uh, doctorate was obtained from the Theological University of the Reformed Churches Liberated in the Netherlands. And for some of you who know a little about, about that history, that's the school that would be associated with the history of Klaus Gilder and Sekul Gridanus and that great separation that took place uh, in the Netherlands. He has written numerous articles for academic journals and church magazines. He has published a number of books. And he began serving, I think, in 2011 as ethics consultant and executive director of Worldview Resources International, which is a service organization whose mission is to produce and provide resources designed to assist in understanding and applying a Christian worldview to responsible living in a global culture. A lot of uh, Dr. Klosterman's time is spent in translating classic Dutch Reformed theology into English so that uh, all of us can benefit from it. We worship the Lord, we honor the man, and we are grateful that Dr. Klosterman can be with us, and I believe you'll find this to be an attentive congregation. It is good to be with you uh, tonight uh, for my annual appearance um, among you. Now, this, uh, this occurs in connection with, perhaps you know, the, uh, the uh, conference that was held at Holy Trinity Presbyterian Church um, on the biblical perspectives on marriage and singleness. And uh, I was uh, privileged to participate as one of the uh, speakers, but... I have this habit when I accept such invitations to request rather soon that I be allowed to preach when I'm doing this kind of work because I wish to be known not as a conference speaker. We don't need any reformed uh, circuit-riding conference heroes. We need preachers, and I believe that's my calling. That's my vocation before the Lord, and so I am deeply grateful for the opportunity to preach tonight and to be here to occupy this pulpit and uh, to serve you God's word. And I'm going to interrupt you. Since you come from a northern climate, and this is a very warm morning, it is. Take that back oh boy, that was... <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping, but dared not ask. <laughs> Thank, 
Thank you very much. Before we turn to God's Word, and if you have your Bibles, let's open them and then pray, okay? We're going to open them to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah 1, and we're going to study together tonight verses 4 through 16. Verses 4 through 16. And with God's Word open before us, let's call upon Him to open our hearts and our minds to hear it and to receive it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of Scripture. We thank you for those familiar parts as well as those unfamiliar parts. And tonight, as we come upon a familiar story known to many of the children here tonight, we're interested and we're eager to learn the gospel from this story. And so we pray that you will keep us and help us to stay attentive and focused on your word and on its proclamation. We pray for the grace to receive And having received, to believe, and having believed, to live the gospel from Jonah 1. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jonah 1 at verse 4 will be our our text, but I want to read, well, the entire uh, first three verses to give us some background. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board and to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And now comes our study for tonight. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you Give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know. It is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. There ends the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the boys and girls, if you could summarize this story in the Bible of this prophet Jonah and his flight, his desertion of duty from the Lord, if you could describe it using, well, let's pick a theological word tonight to describe what's going on. How about the word providence? Providence is a word the heart of which is the verb provide, and what we see in this story is the providence of the Lord, or the Lord providing a number of things. Among them, among them, the Lord provides the storm as a way of arresting and stopping his deserting prophet's servant, Jonah. Later, the Lord provides a lot, the lot that fell on Jonah. That wasn't accidental. That wasn't by chance. That was the direction of the Lord. It was, his, it was his providence that occasioned that. And then finally, in verse 15, we read of the providence of the Lord that brought the calm. They threw Jonah overboard, we read in 15. They picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Be very careful how you formulate in your mind the principle of cause and effect. They threw Jonah overboard and the sea ceased its raging. But between those two statements lies the Lord's providence and the Lord's power. It's this providence that about which we teach our children to sing, isn't it? When we teach them the song, You Cannot Hide from God. I've always thought that was a bit of an eerie song, don't you? You know, you cannot hide from God as though who wants to? Oh, well, that's the problem, isn't it? Every one of us by nature wants to hide from God. So when we teach our boys and girls to sing, You Cannot Hide from God, they're learning a lesson Jonah had forgotten. You cannot hide from God. But you notice in in this passage that God's providence includes even more still. It includes his protection of his own prophet. Despite his disobedience, despite the fact that Jonah is, as we're going to explain this, this, this evening, Jonah is a negative example, a negative type of Jesus Christ. Despite all that, the Lord protects him and preserves him. So as we go into our text tonight, into the passage, let's ask ourselves, again by way of introduction, who are the main characters? I think there are four. The first one is obvious. That's God. God is the main character, to be sure. He's superintending. He is directing. He is conducting this this narrative, this story, and what's going on. That's our confession of faith tonight as we go into the text. But then there's Jonah. And who is Jonah? Jonah is a prophet. He's a prophet of Israel. He's a prophet who had been commissioned, assigned, called to go with a message to Nineveh, a message of repentance. You would think, you would think a message threatening divine judgment would have been right up Jonah's alley because the Ninevites were the arch enemies of the nation of Israel. And so Jonah got the call to go to Nineveh, the arch enemies of Israel, and pronounce and declare God's judgment against them. And you would think he would have grabbed it up, except... You know the story, don't you? He knows the character of God. And God, our God, is a responsive God. He responds to the penitence of people. And when they repent, then he comes toward them in mercy and grace, compassion and forgiveness. That's Jonah. A third 
set of characters in this story, and we're going to make a lot of them tonight, are the sailors, the sailors, the mariners. These are outsiders. That is to say, they are outside the covenant of God, outside the people of God. And in our story tonight, I think they have a a symbolic function, a very important one. They symbolize the world. They symbolize the world. Now you think, when you hear me say that phrase, the world, you must think of those who are outside of Christ, those whose lives are oriented and directed and arranged according to principles of self and sin and ambition and all of that. And against that world stands the church. Okay? In this story, these, these sailors are the world. And they're imperiled. We're going to see tonight. They're imperiled on the sea. And there's a fourth character, not mentioned, not mentioned, but nonetheless present. And that character is Israel. Israel. I remind you that the book of Jonah was part of Israel's Bible. And that as Israel lived with this book in her Bible, she was supposed to hear it. In those days, they didn't have very many books, and so that's how these Books were communicated through reading and through listening. They were supposed to hear this story, not just as a story about Jonah, this hapless, pitiable, runaway prophet. They were to hear this story as a story about Israel. Because the lessons Jonah needed to learn were lessons Israel needed to learn. The theology that that Jonah was subject to, that caused him all of his distress and his sin was the theology that lived among Israel and would later come to expression in response to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Israel is in this story because Jonah is a representative, a symbolic type of Israel. Well, let's get into our text. I'm going to summarize these verses that I hope to open up to you tonight with the theme, The Lord Shows Mercy to Pagans by Punishing His Prophet. Just think about that with me for a few moments. The Lord, that is, the covenant God of Israel, shows mercy to pagans by punishing his prophet Jonah. We notice three things. First, we see that this mercy is occasioned because of the prophet's sin. Verses 4 through 6 and verse 12. This mercy is occasioned by the prophet's sin. It's located, secondly, located despite the prophet's silence. And this refers to verses 7 to 10 and 16. This mercy of God, which he intends to show to the world in the persons of the sailors, is located despite Jonah's silence. And finally... This mercy is obtained through the prophet's death. And I put death in quotation marks there. Through the prophet's death. And I'm referring here to verses 11 through 15. The Lord's mercy was occasioned because of the prophet's sin. No sooner sooner had Jonah boarded ship and set sail to Tarshish to flee from God than the Lord, it says so, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. This was an intense storm. It was a great wind. It was a mighty tempest. In verse 11, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. 
<coughs> and in verse 13, verse 13, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. This was not, this was not a few white caps on the water, folks. This was a raging, raging storm that threatened to capsize, if not destroy and break apart the very ship that Jonah and these mariners were sailing upon. But now back away a minute and think about what is going on here from their point of view, the sailors. What we've got going here is an economic disaster. If you're familiar at all with shipping and navigation, or maybe trucking, moving equipment, moving goods and produce, you know that in the transportation industry, the shortest distance and the shortest time between two points means money. And the longer it takes, the more breakdowns you experience, the more it's going to cost, and the profit margin goes down, down, down. And what we're looking at here in this, in this tempest and in this threatened destruction of the ship is a genuine economic disaster. Don't, don't underplay that. Don't say, well, okay, so what? Not so what? These men made their livelihood. These men made their, they supported their families by means of this navigation. So this economic disaster was very serious. So serious, they started throwing the cargo overboard. That's the cargo they were called to transport. They started throwing equipment overboard. And they experienced very immediately the loss, the loss of time and money. In addition, of course, you know, the lives, the lives of the sailors are endangered. And so the captain went to Jonah and sought Jonah's help to avert perishing. And he said to Jonah, now Jonah, I want you to call on your God. We've been calling on our gods. And I'm going to pause a moment to remind you that in the ancient world, the gods, plural, were territorial deities. That is to say, if you lived in Moab, well, you served the god Molech. And if you lived in Philistia, you served the god Dagon. And if you lived in Palestine or Israel, you happened to serve Yahweh or Jehovah. So they come to Jonah with this territorial understanding of religion, and they say, we're calling on our gods. We want you to call on your God to see if he can do something to get us out of this mess. But I want to draw your attention to the fact in verse 12 that when they come to him, they ask, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Because they discovered, of course, by the lot, casting the lot, that Jonah was the culprit. He said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. And this is the point I want you to catch. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, I want those words to sink in. Jonah, the AWOL, absent without leave, deserting prophet of the Lord, is interpreting to the sailors, representatives of the world, and declaring to the world the reason for this storm that has endangered all of them. He says, I know it is because of me that this has happened. Here's why I want you to camp on this verse for a few moments with me. When we notice, as we notice, that the occasion for the Lord showing mercy to the world in this instance was the sin of his prophet. We've got to let that sink in because there are times, brothers and sisters... There are times in history 
when the Lord threatens the world and he punishes the world because of the sins of the church and because of the sins of his servants. That's what's going on in the text tonight. This is part of the message of the book of Jonah to Israel. It was a lesson Jonah acknowledged here in verse 12b. That there are times in history and he's saying this is one of them. This has happened because of me. I know it. And this book being read in Israel's Old Testament and in Israel's hearing was nothing but a reminder to Israel that whatever judgments and whatever threatenings and punishments that the Lord has in store for the world can at times be occasioned and unleashed because of the sins of God's people Israel. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Although we cannot tie every hurricane and every flood and every earthquake directly to God's judgment against the world because of the church. We can't do that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, every judgment in nature, in culture, in life, every judgment provides us an opportunity as God's servants to evaluate and to review our calling and to ask the question, are you on the run? Are you on the run? You say, on the run from what? Well, on the run. On the run from being God's servant, God's light, God's emissary, God's representative and reflection in the world. Are you on the run? You say, on the run? How could I be on the run? Well, by putting your light and hiding your light under a bushel. You could be on the run by declining to stand up where you need to stand up for the name of Jesus Christ and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could be on the run by neglecting your covenantal responsibilities with respect to to parenting, with respect to taking care of and nurturing and raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There are so many ways you could be on the run. But every judgment that the Lord administers in history to the world is an opportunity then For us to ask, is the Lord chasing you down? Now, pause here a moment because we look at the world and we see judgments afoot. I mean, if you haven't felt the cultural earthquake in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you haven't been awake. The chandeliers are shaking from the ceiling. They're ready to come down. And we like to point and we like to identify and we like to show and we like to tell what's going on and what's going wrong with the world. And tonight we've got to stop that. We have to stop that and we've got to look at ourselves. Just as Jonah did when he's on this ship amidst the world, the sailors, and he confesses, I know that this has happened because of me. This, this is about the church. And her mission in the world, don't you see? When the church disobeys or gets distracted, the world is endangered. Think about that. When the church gets distracted, the world is endangered. When the church hoards grace, when the church, Christians, you and I, when we try to put down a reservation... On grace, we put it down a reservation like in a restaurant. We put down a reservation and we say, that's mine. When we treat grace like that and we put it in our pocket and we button up the pocket and we walk around like we've got it, 
then we are endangering the world. Then we are inviting, we are inviting a storm from heaven. So before we look out and we look around and we shake our heads and we hold our hearts and we say to each other, where is it all going to go? Before we do that, we must look in the mirror in connection with God's calling to us as his prophets. We share in the anointing of Jesus Christ as his prophets to speak, to live out, and to demonstrate his message of grace in the world. So the mercy that the Lord is going to show the world, the pagans, was occasioned by the prophet's sin. Secondly, it's located despite, despite the prophet's silence. The soldiers, you see, don't know what Jonah knows. I'm sorry, the sailors. The sailors don't know what Jonah knows. He knows he's been called. He knows he's a minister, prophet, who's supposed to go to Nineveh, but he's on the run. They don't know this. And so they go searching for the source of their trouble. They cast lots, which was an ancient religious tool for discerning the will of the gods. Whether it was dice or whether it's certain kind of stones, we don't know. But at any rate, the outcome was that the lot pointed to Jonah by divine providence and by divine ordination. The lot led to Jonah, and so they confront him. And their question to Jonah proceeded from a little knowledge about religion and how things work. So they inquire about the source of the storm, believing that it had some connection with Jonah's occupation and his nationality. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? What's your, uh, where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now remember, this is the world coming to the church, represented in Jonah, in the midst of judgment, saying, tell us who you are. And what does Jonah say? I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Now, in the ears of the mariners, in the ears of the sailors, this was a territorial claim. If you served Dagon, if you served Molech, or if you served Baal, these gods, they had power over certain things. Baal was the god of fertility, and he made flocks and fields and women fertile. So, so Jonah says, I, I'm... I'm of the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This God is the creator God. He's the God who made the universe. And and Jonah answers them in terms of their question and their theological understanding, doesn't he? What I'm trying to suggest to you tonight is you've got to listen to what he didn't say. You've got to hear that he didn't tell them of this God's mercy. He didn't tell them of this God's loving kindness. He was silent about this God's sovereign grace. He was silent about this God's plan for the world. He answered the mariner's question in terms that were put to him and no more. 
In other words, he supplied a religious explanation of things that were happening in terms expected by his surrounding culture. Remember, the sailors represent the world, Jonah represents God and Israel and the church. Jonah offers an explanation in terms expected by his surrounding culture without explaining the heart and the core of the Lord's purpose and power. Now, I'm I'm saying this stuff on purpose, folks. I hope you get this. He failed to explain what was going on in terms of the heart and the core of the Lord's purpose and power. In other words... What Jonah said was true as far as it went. As far as it went. I'm preaching to you at this point about the mercy of the Lord shown to pagans despite the prophet's silence. Despite the prophet's silence. You say, silence. What's there to be silent? Where's the silence here? He's identifying the Lord by name. He's making this great confession about creation, land, and sea, and all this. Brothers and sisters, this God was more than the creator. This God is the redeemer. This God is the one who led Israel out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is the God who gave Israel a life, a liturgy, and a land in Israel. But Jonah says none of this. None of this. And I'm going to invite you tonight to look in the mirror. To look in the mirror with respect to the church's message to the world in terms that the world expects and the world has come to expect. So that what we say to the world may well be true as far as it goes. Would you like an illustration? God hates homosexuality. God hates abortion. God hates divorce. All of those statements are true. All of those statements seem to compose and comprise a lot of the church's message to the world in this cultural turmoil in which we live. This message that I just said to you is true as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough. If that's the only message as Christians, as church, that we have to give to the world, God doesn't approve of this, then we've answered the world's questions, if they're asking them at all. We've answered the world's questions in terms that they've come to expect. And they come to expect answers that have to do with behavior, morality, conduct, In or out, check boxes, got that, 
That's the world's expectations. And, and so often as church, we tend to satisfy those explanations in the, in the advice and judgments that we render. God doesn't like this. He does like that. You know, he doesn't like, he doesn't like uh, people, you know, who, who, who swear and dance and chew and hang around with them that do. He doesn't like those. And we, we reduce the Christian faith and the Christian life to that. And the world can live with that. But you see, what we're silencing, what we've suppressed and what we've not spoken about in answer to the world's questions is that the world also needs to hear, in addition to God's no, God's yes. You say, homosexual, where's the yes to homosexuals? Where's God's yes to mothers who've committed abortion? Where's God's yes to people who've committed divorce. Brothers and sisters, surely, surely you believe that God has a yes for those people. Don't you? Upon repentance, upon confession and acknowledgement of sin, upon coming to the Lord in humility, pleading upon the merits and mercies of Christ Jesus, surely Surely we believe, don't we, that there's a yes in the gospel to the world that is careening in shipwreck mode around us? Jonah was silent about the mercy of God to the world. And it's possible. I'm not suggesting it's real. I'm suggesting we look in the mirror. It is possible. That in our cultural catastrophic confusion today, that we have become experts at saying no while silent about the yes. The yes, by the way, congregation, if you'd like more specificity to that yes, that yes involves compassion. It involves mercy, pity, pity. I'll ask you rhetorically. Don't answer. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever met a mother who committed abortion? Have you ever talked with her and asked her why and come to realize the desperation, the utter desperation of being at the end of her rope with no support, with no kindness, with no, nobody around to help, and that was the only choice she thought she had? Can you, in your heart, muster any granule of sympathy, not approval, sympathy, not approval. Because you see, that's how your God and my God respond to us. Without ever excusing, without ever approving our disobedience and depravity, the Lord does understand. He does understand and recognize. Have you ever talked with a homosexual? Intactful, kind, compassionate language about the loneliness of a disordered sexual identity, about the isolation, about the powerlessness of control over one's desires. Have you ever talked? Does, is, there, is there ever any granule of sympathy 
to which then the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ and the gospel are the answer and the antidote to pull such people out of darkness? I ask you those questions rhetorically, but behind them is another more important question. Do you care? Do you care about these people? Because they've been formed and fashioned in the image of God and distorted and perverted and spoiled as that image is. These are people who have been fashioned by your creator, God, and mine. And he has sent and is sending us, the church, with the gospel message, not only of no, but also of yes. That message of compassion, pity, sympathy for those who are bound up in sin and darkness. I say the Lord shows mercy to pagans by punishing his prophet. The location of that mercy is found despite the prophet's silence. But finally, thirdly, the Lord shows mercy which is obtained through the prophet's death. Through the prophet's death. I have in mind verses 11 to 15. You see, Jonah, Jonah realized what had to be done. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. Now, the sailors were honorable men. And they didn't want anybody's blood on their hands, and so they did what good sailors do. They rowed harder. They paddled harder to get to shore, this big ship. But to no avail. To no avail. As they they prepare to implement the punishment recommended to them by Jonah, they did so with praying to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Was this a prayer of faith, do you suppose? Perhaps we could better say it was a prayer of fear. This God was angry. And they acknowledged this God was bigger than they were and bigger than their gods. And they were about to go under. So they did what religious, superstitious sailors do. They prayed And then in verse 15, we get this wonderful cause and effect verse. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The action and its result are tied together directly and immediately in verse 15. Now let me ask you the question, what does this verse 15 mean? I mean to say, what does it mean that they cast Jonah into the sea and the sea stopped Just like that, it's raging. We have to answer that question on a number of levels, at least four levels. What it meant for the sailors was they could get together their their equipment and their wits and they could continue their voyage and they could come limping into port to unload whatever remaining cargo there was. So for them, Jonah's being hurled into the sea meant in at least this metaphorical, economic, physical sense, salvation. Really, it was his death in the water 
allowed them to continue in going on, escaping the Lord's judgment and punishment for a time. That's what it meant for the sailors. What did it mean for Jonah? Verse 15. Well, as he gurgled his way to the bottom, fighting for for air, Jonah was preparing to die. And in chapter 2, you can read his song, his psalm composed in the belly of the fish, in which he describes his deliverance by that fish as a veritable, real, true deliverance from death. Jonah was saved. What does this mean for Israel? Well, I keep telling you tonight, this book is in Israel's Bible. And as they hear this story and they see Jonah, who represents Israel, gurgling down to the bottom in the water, what do you suppose Israel's thinking? You're right. Somewhere, somehow, when you least expect it, the judgment of the Lord is going to break out on us. And we're going to have, if we're going to be saved, we're going to have to die. We're going to have to die. That's what it meant for Israel. But we're not finished. What does this verse mean for us? For us. Well, it means for us this. That later in history, the Lord punished another prophet. He showed mercy to pagans. By punishing his prophet, not the one who went AWOL, not the one who was disobedient, but another prophet punished, not for his disobedience, but yours and mine. The Lord God punished another prophet, Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ himself pointed To this punishment of Jonah as a blueprint for his own punishment that he was going to undergo for the sake of the sins of his people, not himself, for the sake of the sins of the world. But here's the hardest lesson tonight. In so doing, In pointing to Jonah and his being hurled into the sea and the judgment being calmed, in so doing, Jesus Christ implicitly reminds those who heard him and hear him, reminds us of our culpability in his death, of our responsibility in his death. Because you see, the judgment of God that came bursting forth upon Jesus was a judgment that was unleashed by the sins of God's people. And the, and the, the salvation that was, a, that was to be obtained and that was to be acquired required the death of the prophet, Jesus Christ, who spent... Three days and three nights, not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the earth. And he didn't even have it coming. 
You know it's because of you, don't you? You know that his death is because of you. Thank God that he underwent being cast out of God's presence, being cast away in God's judgment in order to quiet that judgment against you and against me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And knowing this dynamic now, how the Lord God shows mercy to pagans, and by the way, that'd be you. You and I all were pagans. If not you, then your ancestors. Right? The Lord shows mercy to pagans by the death of his prophet Jesus Christ, the greater than Jonah. And this Jesus Christ now reminds us tonight, and I close with this, these words from Matthew 5.13. Very, I'm sorry to leave you on this note, but I, I have to. Very sobering, sobering words. Y'all are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, which in the original says becomes foolish, moronic. And in the Bible, a fool is not somebody with a low IQ or never graduated high school. In the Bible, a fool is one who transgresses God's commandments. You are the salt of the earth, and if the salt becomes foolish, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, here it comes, here it comes, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I'm not a predictive prophet. I'm a proclaiming prophet. So I can't predict to you what's going to come around the curve in the, in the history of our country with respect to religious liberty, with respect to the public treatment of Christianity. I can't predict. But here's one thing I pray for. I pray that if the Lord's judgment should burst forth upon our nation and upon our country, that it may have the kind of purifying, cleansing effect that will return God's prophets, that's us, to their calling. The calling of declaring the will of God and the word of God to a culture that is dying and is in need of life. I pray that whatever judgment is around the corner, whatever persecution may break out, that it may have that sifting effect so that we can separate once and for all, please, those who are really Christian and those who are playing Christian in our country. But I warn you, It begins with the household of God. Get ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are sobered up by this message and by this warning, but also we are delighted by the grace, the mercy that comes to your people through the death of your prophet and through his judgment. We thank you for Jesus Christ the greater than Jonah, the one who stands far, far taller, far more holy, far more obedient than Jonah ever was or could be, even our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. 
because he was cast out into the sea of your wrath, of your anger, separated from you, your judgment was calmed and the sea was stilled so that we, we could now go forth as your emissaries and ambassadors in our life styles in this world. So bless us. Bless us with the complete gospel, both the no and the yes, so that we may be faithful and fulsome representatives of our God and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.